ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Jonathan Webb and this is a final summer bonus episode of The Science Show podcast. It's Science Extra and today... I'm looking back on the year in mental health and neuroscience and psychology news broadly with two fantastic minds from Radio National. I have Sana Kadar from our own brilliant podcast, All in the Mind. Hi, Sana. Hello, hello. And investigative journalist Angela Voipierre is here as well. G'day, Ange. Hi. So let's start with you, Ange, because you've done a lot of work on one of the stories of our time, but a story that, if anything, got even louder this year, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. No one really says it all, all the words that much no. out loud anymore, do they? ADHD. Why do you need to uh, spell it out like that when we're absolutely swimming in it? I feel like, you know, so many people... Um, they know someone who's got a diagnosis, who's looking into it. Um, maybe that's you. It's certainly me in the last 12 months. I got an ADHD diagnosis formally in February of 2023. Um, so that's actually kind of how I started down this path. Uh, and, you know, cliche to say, but I'm not alone. Uh, there have been 414,000 Australians who, well, this was actually only in 2022, there were 414,000 Australians receiving medication specifically for ADHD, um, which is a figure that doubled in the five-year period that they were measuring. So from 2018 to 2022, it had doubled. It's a significant increase and and it's really only increased uh, again. Right. So 2023 got even bigger? Yeah, we don't have the figures uh, to hand, but... And this is always dangerous. I realise I'm talking uh, talking on a science program, so I don't want to say, look, anecdotally, but <laughs> <laughs> essentially that is kind of what we're basing it off here. And it's definitely in the zeitgeist, for want of a better word, yeah. right? Like it's trending. We see it a lot on social media. And there's also been a lot of talk this past year about how you get your diagnosis and your medication and whether those processes are robust enough. How did you find your experience of realising and seeking and getting a diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of my investigations uh, throughout the year were really focused on this particular kind of ADHD, mostly telehealth clinics that have cropped up to serve this incredible market demand. So, you know, apart from just anecdotal evidence, the reason we know that this is still happening is because it's still really hard to get into a psychiatrist. And if you, you know, they're looking for an ADHD assessment, often there's a really hefty price tag attached to that. Um, So there's a bit of a bottleneck. Yeah, very much so. And so my own investigations, you know, we heard stories about up to $3,000 being the the price tag on an assessment. Um, There was a Senate inquiry into the matter later in the year looking at access to care. And, you know, there was a figure $6,000 that was mentioned there. So it really is um, pretty extraordinary. That's not everyone, of course. That's for a single diagnosis, $6,000. For an assessment. So it's not even necessarily a diagnosis that's like, look, we'll check you out for it. Um, And so people are paying extraordinary amounts of money because the public sector doesn't really treat ADHD in adults. And of course, you know, part of the reason we're in this situation is because ADHD has been recognised differently in the in the DSM and by the medical profession um, recently. And so we're playing catch up. There are a lot of people and most of them are adults and women are overrepresented there as well, uh, who have had it all along and are only just now realising. So, yeah, so, it so is... part of the reason for this huge 
wave of diagnoses is that we're, we weren't really diagnosing it before and now we are. It's not necessarily that more people are sort of suffering or living with this yeah, condition. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, we are. We're, so, we're sort of now just catching it. Although, you know, what you've hit on there is really a big debate at the heart of this issue, which is there are people uh, who look in on this, and this is this is a really a rift in the, the medical profession, um, people who look in on, you know, that pretty staggering number of diagnoses in recent years and, and the number of people on often schedule eight stimulants, you know, drugs that we're pretty careful about as a society um, and going, this is overdiagnosed. This is not, it's not possible for all these people to have it. Um, this is, you know, a kind of social trend that's being, it's bled into, you know, diagnoses and and there is this, you know, profitable, because um, it, it is incredibly profitable at the moment um, for certain clinics. Uh, this business model has been set up, and that's not to say that they're they're doing, you know, sort of drumming their fingers together, wondering how they yeah, can, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. give people the wrong diagnosis. They're in there by and large, I think, because they they want to help people. Um, but a, a quote. But I've there heard, are some questionable incentives in there potentially. Yeah, I mean, you know, as part of one investigation, um, we saw recruitment ads promising salaries of. $900,000 for Truth. a psychiatrist to come and, yeah, to come and join one of those those clinics that I mentioned that are sort of ADHD specialist. And so you can see why why that accusation comes up. And yeah, one, one quote that I've heard time and time again covering this story is, um, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. If you're set up as, a, as an that ADHD clinic and, and people come in and they say, look, and they've done their research. Usually, you know, they came across, or many of them at least came across the idea that they might have this talking to a friend, many of them on social media as well. So ADHD talk is a corner of TikTok that is very well populated um, and, you know, lots of really useful content there as well. A lot of people, you know, also trying to make a buck, um, not necessarily dishonestly, but offering ADHD coaching services and, and, and things like that. And so you can start to see how, you know, it can get ahead of steam behind it. Let's hear a little bit of your reporting on this from The Health Report in May last year. Christopher Wiesman is a director and board member of the ADHD Foundation. We're seeing clinics popping up everywhere and some of them are charging up to $3,000 for a diagnosis. It's not one assessment in isolation. It's a series of processes that these clinics design to justify, I suppose, the cost. There might be a small percentage that's covered, but the majority in the private system is unfortunately out of pocket. Some people will charge two, three, four, five, six hundred dollars, and they're the you know the reasonable people that aren't interested in gouging the markets. The average seems to be between fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred. Three thousand is certainly at the extreme, but there's a lot of people charging that. All specialists in Australia, and that includes psychiatrists, are able to charge whatever they want. There's no cap. But because the public system very rarely treats ADHD in adults, those patients are forced to either pay the market rate or go without treatment. And there's evidence that those dynamics are distorting salaries. The ABC has seen recruitment emails and text messages sent from multiple clinics to external psychiatrists, promising enormous take-home pay. For example... We are hiring consultant psychiatrist. This is a text written in all caps lock, by the way, and there are three exclamation points after the word hiring, just to give you a sense of the tone. Over $900,000 per annum. Minimum income guarantee, $3,800 per day. Signing bonus, 
$3,000. So you can understand the cynical perspective that this is over-diagnosed and some of these practitioners are just exploiting the situation and turning a dime. What's the other perspective? Well, the other perspective is really that that this has been historically underdiagnosed. I mean, I'm I'm proof of that. You know, I've got a number of friends in the same situation, lots of them women who, because we used to think that ADHD looked like Bart Simpson and we didn't really have a very, you know, a broader understanding of how it might look, particularly in girls or or people of colour, you know, a lot of this research, a lot of it was all sort of organised around um, young white blokes. and Uni students, and, lots of them, right, in the old school yeah, quite, psychological yeah. trials and quite possibly, data. Yeah, and, and so um, we, it just wasn't calibrated. The, the diagnostics sort of criteria wasn't calibrated for anyone other than, than that. And so, yeah, the, the, there are all these people and they're getting treatment, they're understanding themselves better. So there's power in that self-knowledge, the people who are medicated. Often that's having, you know, life-changing effects. What um, difference did it make to you? It is the calmest I've felt in my entire life. And I'm still not a calm person. Uh, you can probably get that <laughs> vibe off me. Uh, people don't describe me that way, but you should have seen inside my brain before I I went through this process. Um, it's not perfect. Um, it's not a perfect solution. I think there is a bit of a narrative sometimes, particularly on social media, that these are wonder drugs and that they will solve all your problems. Um, you know, if you do have ADHD, they won't. But the difference it has made is it's allowed me to tackle all other all these other kinds of problems in my life as well. Things like, you know, I don't want to, dr- I don't feel like I need to drink anymore ever. You know, it's, it's stuff like that, you know, you kind of, things that you didn't even know might have been related. Yeah. Um, sleep is easier, you know, th- there's all kinds of stuff that, that flows from it. Um, and, and so, yeah, that that is the counter argument that we really did miss people um, and they do deserve care. Um, should they be paying as much as they're paying for it? Probably not at the moment. And I think the other thing that isn't often captured in this debate when we do find ourselves locked into these binaries and binaries are so dangerous is that I think something can be overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed at the same time, particularly when you have this winnowing factor that's um, financial, you know, yeah. people who can access the treatment. There's a kind of threshold. There. Yeah, there's yeah. this threshold. There are so many people who simply can't access that treatment that they just can't afford to at the moment. I know people who have deferred and deferred and deferred because they, they literally would have to save up for it and it just hasn't happened, particularly with the cost of living being what it is. So, yeah, it, it, can, be, it can be both. Um, and I've, yeah, had a, had a wonderful time picking my path through this incredibly complicated topic over the last 12 months. It's a fascinating insight. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. So, Sana, from ADHD, which as we've just been hearing, was maybe thought of as more of a male condition and sort of under-explored and diagnosed in women until recently, you were looking at a condition that was kind of the other way around. We mostly think about mental health problems around childbirth being a mum's problem. Yes, we do, especially, yeah, perinatal depression and anxiety is very much considered a female thing. And, you know, about one in five mums will suffer perinatal depression and anxiety. So it's it's common, but it happens to dads too. And that's really not something that gets talked about a lot. There's not a lot of attention paid to it. About one in 10 dads will experience it. Yeah, one in five mums and one in 10 dads. So exactly. 
Yeah, there's a twofold difference, but they're not that. Yeah, they're in the same ballpark. I, I, I certainly thought it was a lot more fathers than I would have guessed when I first started covering the story. And the thing is, like, obviously, you know, after birth, during birth, around birth, the attention is on mum. They're going through a lot physically. Uh, and so you can kind of understand why it's been missed historically in men. But, you know, the mental health of caregivers is really important to the well-being of the child and the whole family unit. So it's very much worth Hugely. paying attention to dads as well. Yeah, well, it would affect, you know, whichever partner is suffering, it would mm. definitely affect the other partner if it's a family with two parents and the child, yep. other children if they're around. The exactly. Whole. has a huge impact. And it's interesting because perinatal depression and anxiety can look quite different in men. Like so, what? What does it look like? So in women, you you know, they'll feel fatigue, they might feel sadness and hopelessness, and that'll often be expressed um, outwardly with tearfulness. So it's, it's a bit maybe easier to pick up from the outside. Men tend to, this is slightly generalizing, but this is what um, various organizations who deal in this space told me, men tend to maybe feel those things as well, but go inwards. So they withdraw. Um, they might lean more into work because that's an area where they feel competent and they understand how to deal with. Um, so it they might, might make it worse in the longer run. Exactly. But yeah, overall, there's a withdrawal that seems to go on with men when they feel like this. And also it might exhibit in sort of physical symptoms like Headaches, a lot of irritability as well. That's a huge component of how it expresses in men. So there's also differences. Hard to distinguish from the irritability that this is not meaning to trivialize it, <laughs> but who, as a recent father myself, who hasn't felt pretty irritable with I the know. parenting situation? This is true. And that's, yeah, it's a, a soup of emotions you go through yeah. either way when a child is born. So, how do clinicians? unpick that. What should you kind of look for to know whether you are just getting irritable like a parent or whether it's something more to worry about? Well, this is interesting. So there's organizations like Panda and the Gidget Foundation that are sort of helplines and resources for new parents who might be struggling. And I spoke to them about how they have in the last few years noticed more men starting to reach out, not just for help with their partner's mental health, but their own mental health. And that's been a real shift since about COVID is when they started noticing this. So Panda, for example, now has about one in 10 callers who are men to their helpline, wondering often about their own mental health. So there seems to be more discussion going on around this that is converting to more men being willing to seek help. And it is some of those things of, you know, looking out for whether you're feeling flatness, sadness, hopelessness, feeling more irritable, um, feeling unable to regulate those emotions, feeling withdrawn. Those are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, men and their partners can be looking out for. Fascinating. We did a lot of work around the area of, you know, childbirth and parents and their well-being this year in the science unit. You were involved in some of this as well. We ran the, we sort of developed, it actually kicked off in 2022, but last year we really developed and told a lot of stories from the birth project, which uh, some of you listening may have come across. We put out a, a survey and actually heard from nearly 4,000 mm. people who are either, you know, parents or family members with experience of childbirth that they wanted to talk about or clinicians or, you know, some sort of practitioners, physios, midwives, whoever they might be working in that space. We kind of wanted to be very open-minded about it. We set this fairly broad survey out aiming to hear from all those different kind of constituents and heard this amazing kind of breadth of experiences, but a lot of them pretty dramatic and mm. pretty traumatic from people with all, all sorts of different backgrounds. And a lot of those issues like perinatal mental health were obviously really strong kind of themes. Yeah. So um, it's worth having a look at that if people are interested. You can find a collection of some of the stories that we told at abc.net.au slash birth project. Um, 
And you looked at some of the outcomes of childbirth as well, Sana. One of your more uh, heartwarming programs <laughs> of the year was all about the way we sing with our kids. Yeah, and this is something that's been sort of floating around in my mind since I had my child three years ago, where I noticed, you know, as soon as he was born, I kind of like converted into this nonstop singing machine. Like everything just became a ditty all yep. of a sudden. And I was speaking to some other friends who had given birth and who were also like, what has happened to me? Who am I? Yep. Um, and so I don't know if you noticed when you had your child, did you start singing all the time? Yeah, all the time. And a lot of them were not. I remember you doing your show and you did a kind of call out for songs that yeah. people sang to their kids. For some reason, the one, I mean, we did a lot, but the one that really stuck with my mind was not really fit for air. <laughs> it was about nappy changes. I mean, you had some, I remember in your show, you had we some had nice lots little of nappy, change nappy songs. changing ditties. Because yeah. that's one of the times when you're with your child and you really want to keep them upbeat and engaged. Yes. And not screaming. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nappy change songs, I definitely had some. And it's interesting. So we, this is a near universal habit. I say that because um, one of the researchers we spoke to in our episode, Alex Woolard, uh, talked about how there's like two tribes from uh, New Guinea and one in Guatemala where they don't actually sing to their kids. This is sort of, there's not a wow. lot of research in this area, but we know about two tribes. That Interesting. One tribe doesn't um, talk to the child at all in the first year of life. The other tribe speaks for the child, like t assumes the voice of the child and speaks to other adults wow. that way. So it's not quite universal. Not quite universal, but very near universal that we do this. And that's because there are three really key functions to why we sing to babies. One is that it's a really good tool for grabbing their attention. Um, singing is very different to spoken speech. So it, it's salient, it sticks out, and it's, you'll notice when you start singing to your kid, they, you know, they turn to you and they listen when they're babies. I don't know when they're older if that quite translates. So one is grabbing attention. The other is it singing teaches babies how to speak. Not just the words, but how sentences are constructed, how yeah. to turn take when there's a pause in a song. Um, often, like, the songs are interactive with children. Um, and also it teaches emotion. It teaches care because it's a very loving act often. You know, it's it's a soothing thing. It's a playful thing. So there's really key reasons why, why we do this with babies. And where do the songs come from? Are they things that, you know, people dredge up from their memory of hearing when they were small? How do they get kind of... Where do we dredge them up from or, or write them, originate them from? Yeah, literally anywhere. So like, yeah, some of them are things you remember from your old childhood. You might be remixing lullabies that you heard. Um, we had people remixing existing pop songs and just making it babyified. Others were just pulling tunes and words out of nowhere, out of their head and constructing these songs on the go. Um, so it really depends on the parent. But the really interesting thing I found is there's a noticeable shift in tone and pitch depending on how old a baby is. So like when they're newborn, this voice you tend to use when you're singing is very soothing, very hushed tones, you know, maybe lullabies because they're so tiny, you don't want to freak them out. And then w when they're around three to nine months old, it gets a lot more exaggerated and the pitch goes up and down and you're kind of really engaging them. And then from nine months onwards, language becomes a bit more technical. There's a lot more repeated words because that's when the kids are starting to mimic sounds and learning to speak. Um, so there's there's a really noticeable shift in how we talk to babies. And I know when I listen to like videos of myself singing to my kid from when he was a newborn versus like eight month old, I kind of cringe hearing how different my voice was back then because yeah, now right. he's three and I don't talk to him or sing to him in the way I did when he was tiny, tiny. What did you sing to your son? Oh God, do you want to hear my song? <laughs> you need to make me sing it again. <laughs> I'll do mine if okay. you do yours. Okay, so I did this in the episode, our baby song episode, and it's embarrassing. This I came up with when he was tiny, so it was a very hushed tone. 
lullaby at first and now I still sing it when he's like going to sleep sometimes, but not as often. And it's in Urdu, which is the language, um, one of the languages I spoke growing up. Um, and so here's the song. I'm just trying to delay singing the song. It goes... <laughs> Mera bacha, mera beta, mera baby, mera jaan. Mera bacha, mera beta, mera baby, mera jaan. And it means my child, my son, my baby, my soul. That's so lovely. And I just go in a loop singing that. So that's one of the songs. I have a million. Yeah. I could go on and on, but I will not. <laughs> I, have, I probably had about a million as well. And you think, you think yours was embarrassing. Yours is going to seem extremely highbrow. <laughs> Next to the one that always comes to mind in this conversation, which is when my son was really small and we were just trying to keep him distracted during nappy changes. And it wasn't particularly soothing what or anything, it? <laughs> but it was like you say, it's a familiar tune that I just wrote new words to and right. I used to go, you've got a whole lot of poo on your balls, poo on your balls, poo on your balls, you've got a whole lot of poo on your balls, poo on your tiny balls. And oh, that's, anyway, that's cute. That's um, sweet. Definitely <laughs> more in the uh, just trying to entertain them and, and singing about what's happening. Yeah. We've got other songs for nappy changes. We had stuff for going to sleep. Here's one of these songs from the episode. It's Mike Williams singing to his daughter. And you can hear Sana and psychologist Dr. Alex Woolard reacting to the song in this clip. Okay, this song comes from Mike Williams, uh, who used to work here at the ABC. He's now at a different podcasting house. Um, okay, let me play this one. Now check your nappy. What's it gonna What's it gonna be? What's it gonna oh. be? Let's see. If it's a, oh, wow. we'll know what to. If it's a, we might. Let it be. What's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? Let's see. It's a. It's a. It's not a poo. <laughs> Amazing. There are so many lovely examples. Just look for that episode of All in the Mind on the ABC Listen app. It's called Why Do We Sing to Babies? And you can also find, thinking back to earlier in the conversation, Angela Voipier's reporting about ADHD in the Schmeitgeist podcast, or she did a, a full episode of Background Briefing as well. Thank you very much for coming in, Sana and Ange. Thanks. That's it for these bonus episodes of The Science Show for the summer. I'll hand you back to Robin Williams, who will be back with another full episode next in the feed. I'm Jonathan Webb. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.